Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Everybody Relax Podcast, facilitated by your boy, licensed clinical social worker and therapist, Trey. Hope that you guys are having a great week. We have another important guest on our More Than My Credentials series, Mr. Brandon Johnson. What's going on, sir? How are you? Hey, bro. I'm good. Things are, things are good. I can't complain at all. It's Friday. I'm, I'm beautiful. Yes, sir. Got to Mr. Mr. John Hawkins himself. Got a little feature <laughs> for the magazine, John. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, they, they threw me up on there. So, you know, yeah. My to, man. That's yeah. what's up, man. Well, tell the people about, um, you know, who you are, what you're about, and what you do. If they don't know. Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I'm definitely a fan um, of this and, and your work in general. But, um, yeah, so absolutely. I'm Brandon Johnson. I am, uh, I'm a, I have a master's degree in health science. Um, I'm a master certified health education specialist. Um, my work uh, specifically, so I tell people like I'm a hybrid, right? So I'm like mental health, public health, like all mixed up into one. So like my undergrad degree is um, from psychology from the the great, the magnificent national treasure of Morgan State University. Okay. I'm here in Baltimore. <laughs> so um, got to show Morgan love. Um, born and raised Baltimore boy. Um, lived in uh, West Baltimore the majority of my life. Um, so like I'm in, particularly like my lane now is around suicide prevention um, black mental health, um, black youth suicide is a big piece of what I do. I work with faith communities and suicide prevention, um, community-based suicide prevention, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm into that work. My current position is a public health advisor for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so I do that as a formal part. My uh, informal part is working as, um, the creator of the Black Mental Wellness Lounge, which is a YouTube channel dedicated to Black mental health and wellness, conversations, dialogue, supports, resources, all that good stuff. That's that's my pandemic, baby. Um, you know, I had no plans on doing that before the pandemic. And, you know, here we are. It's definitely, um, definitely been a great thing. So it was a beautiful thing. So I love being a part of doing that work and being a part of that. I'm also a dad of two um, amazing kids. My son, Nick, is 10. My daughter, Anastasia, will be eight in November um, and husband um, as well. We've um, come up on four years, which is wild. Um, my wife and I are coming up on four. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a bit about me. I'm a huge sports fan, um, you know, love sports and big, big music fan. Um, definitely a big rap fan um, as well. So that's a bit about me. Yes, sir. Oh, I got I got a quick hit of question. I'm gonna throw on the rap side once we get later in the, in the episode. <laughs> I'm with it. But, I'm with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me about getting into this space. You know, did you see yourself get into this space as a you know a teenager, young adult? No. Um, you know, for for me, like growing up in, in Baltimore, like I you know, like, you know, when you were younger, like, you have something that's, like, in school one day, you say, I'm going to be this when I grow up, and you lock it in, you yeah. really don't know, like, if that's something you're going to do, like, mine was, because I was big on, like, building and Legos and stuff like that, like, I was like, I'm going to be an engineer, so, like, that's what I thought I was going to do, and I actually went, when I went to Morgan, I was an engineering major, mm-hmm. it took me one solid semester to realize that that was not it, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So my but my passion was around like, you know, just helping people. And I've understood like, 
you know, as I got older, like some of the like the traumas and the difficult situations and the um the, the stress, the you know, rough coping mechanisms that we had that we, you know, we saw in Baltimore. And so I knew I wanted to be a part of something that helped, you know, heal that. And I didn't, I just didn't know it was going to go into mental health. I really wasn't aware of the field like that when I was growing up. And so it's it's been a journey to kind of get into this piece now. Yeah. Uh, no, no thoughts about wanting to come on the the micro side, the clinician side at all. Yes, it was when I first switched over. I was I was I wanted to be a, a LCPC, um, you know, and I transferred from engineering over there, and you know, I realized soon that 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 I didn't know that was, was going to be it, and it literally took like we were doing our senior. Um, our senior project and we had a um uh we had a conference you know a little mini conference for students to show off their stuff at, at morgan and there was a professor there and said like you know the work that you're doing he was like it's not really clinical like have you thought about public health and i was like what's that and i was like i don't want to be a doctor so you know yeah. what's that and then through like researching and i was like oh i can do both like i can incorporate mental health into that and so i went to that side so i didn't didn't go out in the clinician route, but it definitely was on my on my mind for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always talk about it. Then I think we tweet every once in a while about about like I want to be a macro policy social worker so much, and that's yeah, yeah. my concentration. But the clinical world has you know you know roped me in. Right. And I think also just um, just being in Virginia, I think location has a lot to do with it because yeah. you know Virginia has more clinical. Uh, roles than it does macro roles, unless it's at the state level or nonprofit level. So right. um, that's 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 interesting that you you know you went the other side, just like with JB. Um, right, right. Not being a social worker, he's like, I don't want nothing to do with that clinical side. Right. So, even though I call him a makeshift, I say I, he's a therapist at heart. But yeah. um, <laughs> so so you got to you go into more side of the public health side. Yeah. And did you always? see like suicide prevention in the mix of that or you kind of fell and stumbled into that i stumbled completely into the, okay. the suicide prevention space um i wanted to do violence prevention work okay. so interpersonal violence um and and even you know while i was going through like undergrad and and going through my master's like i was working at johns hopkins school of nursing I got connected with them through my high school at the time so in baltimore there's dumb i went to dunbar high school which is literally like right off the campus of Hopkins and so they had a partnership and you know I was doing admin stuff there but the the professors that I was working with at the time I was just doing admin stuff but they were like national experts in intimate partner violence like mm-hmm. we're now been on Oprah they've been everywhere um as a part of their work and so like I got to like you know get into that violence space and again growing up in Baltimore you see a lot of it you see a lot of it. You see the the outcomes of it. You see the the grief, the mental health stuff. And so I knew I wanted to be in that space. And, you know, I kind of just honed in on that. Even my <clears throat> master's thesis was on intimate partner violence and mental health. Um, you know, it was all that. And so um, there was a position that came up at the state, which is director of suicide and violence prevention. And I was like, well, I'm not going to pass it up just because suicide is a part of it. I'm, let me learn what I can learn about suicide prevention and get into it. And when I got into it, suicide prevention was the bigger piece of it. Mm-hmm. And so I learned and got into it. And when I got into it and saw how it was impacting us, 
in our community, how we were um, not talking about it, but our rates were going up, our impacts were going up. I was like, oh, like there's a role in this space for me to get into. And so that's what I did. Like, I was like, I, I kind of like went all in with it. And, um, you know, suicide prevention was was something I, I guess the field cho- chose me in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm definitely grateful to be a part of this, um, to this space. Suicide prevention, no matter what I do in my career, is always going to be a part of um, me and the work that I do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where we connected at in reference to the episode. I think I've seen you pop up a couple of times around suicide prevention on the Twitter waves. Mm-hmm. And because um, Twitter has been connecting all of us for the past year or two. So it's there been amazing, is. right? Uh, doing what social media is supposed to do, right? Right, the right um, way, the good way. The good, yeah. the good <laughs> but but we, we I think we crossed paths there and you was a guest on uh, JB's podcast, mm-hmm. Equity Matters. Shout out to JB and Equity Matters podcast. Yes. Um, and so we connected there and I was like, yo, it's finally somebody that's, that looks like me that's a brother in the suicide prevention space at a mm-hmm. higher level. Um, and so that was good for me because when I was, I worked in crisis for three mm-hmm. and a half years at the community, uh, community service board. I don't know if you guys got community service boards up there, but mm-hmm. down here we have a community service board and I was working that's straight out of grad school, first job out of grad school, three and a half years doing suicide preventing no, crisis work where we work with individuals who are suicidal, homicidal, psychotic, right. and, you know, put them in the hospital if they need to. X, Y, and Z. But what I was seeing was that same type of model where it was like, yo, this is like, this is, we are seeing increased rates of folks who are, you know, having thoughts about wanting to suicide, maybe completing or, um, yeah. or attempting. And, you know, this and that third. And it's like, something's, something's broken. Right. Something's broken. Right. So yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you got, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So something's broken. So when you got into this role, when you stepped into it, what were, what were you what were you seeing in reference to that? Because you're looking at it from a policy side, where I'm looking at it from a clinician, like a clinician side of it. Yeah, you mean the state role? Um, both, both. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I I think on the state side, um, when I got into that role, there was so much community engagement as a part of it, and so I really got to talk to people. I really got to do the community work and understand what was happening. And, you know, what I saw was that there was a disconnect between communities. Like, you know, there were white affluent communities that were experiencing it that were just like, they were just so confused of like, what's what's going on like with our young people? Like, and especially like having the advantages and the things that they had, it was just like weird for them of like, what's what's going on here? And what I was seeing with with us and our people was, you know, people like talking about, you know, having these instances and seeing this with their kids. And they're like, I didn't think this was an issue with us. Like, I didn't think, you know, this was a thing like or like, I don't, you know, my kid is trying to figure out that they don't want to talk about it because they feel like they're the only one going through it and that their friends would never think about, you know, killing themselves because that's not something that we do. And, you know, I, I started to see that and seeing that there was even a, an awareness issue, there was an acknowledgement issue, there was um, a stigma issue. And, and then going from there, what I found was that there is an intervention and prevention issue. Um, there isn't 
there aren't clinical interventions specifically for us and for our kids and for us as adults in, in suicide prevention, like there, there aren't. And so, um, you know, and as I'm, you know, digging, like everything in the field is so one size fits all, like, you know, we tested it with these affluent white kids, like it'll work for everybody. And, you know, I'm like, well, this is an issue. And then in going deeper, I realized there was a research issue. There was a funding issue with research that there weren't studies being given funding of researchers who, who were looking at this. Like I went and found, you know, studies and, and research. I was able to find some stuff, of course, because there are some um, people that um, have come before me that have really locked into this work and done great work in here. The Dr. Alfie Breland Nobles of the world, the Dr. Sean Joes, Michael Lindsay, Dr. Michael Lindsay. Um, you know, there, there are people who've been in this space who've paved the way for me to do what I do. Um, but disproportionately, there are so many other people who tried to get funding to do this work who weren't funded. Right. And like there's a, a disconnect there. There's there's issues there. And so, you know, that's really what, you know, when I get into that policy piece, like that's what I started to see. And it's only magnified at the federal level. You know, I get to work with states. I get to to, to collaborate with with folks and, you know, understand that there's some real issues with like amplifying what may be happening at the community level. That doesn't mean nothing's happening. Right. It means that they're not getting the studies, I mean, even the funding to do studies, to amplify what they're doing, to back what they're doing, to get the data around it. And so, you know, as a part of that understanding, like, how do we build that up? Like, how do we, you know, strip down what we call like evidence-based practice that works for a specific group while our young people are, you know, their rates are increasing, the rates of, uh, uh, suicidal uh, attempts in our adolescence has been increasing over the past 10 years. Suicide rate of Black youth between the ages of 5 and 12 has doubled in the last 13, 14 years. Like, this is happening, but like, we don't, I'm not seeing the push and the prevention strategies and intervention strategies that we should be doing to help our kids. And so like now my, my role is looking at the disconnects and trying to find ways to make connections and to give supports that we can really do something with our with our kids yeah 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 that's 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 major that's major and and seeing it from the top down level and then wondering why there's not more interventions and there's not more uh clinical pieces of understanding or giving space and credence to those who may be having those thoughts without automatically jumping to a hospitalization you know what i'm saying Absolutely. um and so you know, it was interesting where, like, when I, I put out my book in 17 um, around Black mental health, like, you know, it was called You Good, Fam, and I and purposely put in there suicide prevention stuff in there because we were so afraid to talk about suicide in the community. Like, you can say, we don't, right. we don't do this, we don't, this, that, and the third, but understanding that it was, it was, it was a deeper level to this. This was mental health related. This was environmental stressor related. This was... Mm-hmm. Uh, these things are so much the life right now is so much pressure on me that I feel like I shouldn't exist. I, I can't handle this. Where does that come from? So then an article comes out later on. Um, I don't know where it came from, but it was like a nationally syndicated one, I believe. And it was like, you know, black kids or minority kids are increasing, you know, having suicide attempts at an alarming rate. And mm-hmm. we don't know why. And I just took offense to that because I was like, 
how dare you come out and say you don't know why right when it's right in front of you <laughs> exactly exactly you know, um and how sad is it that you know these kids these young kids are young black kids that we have ages five on up to 12 on up to 21 mm-hmm. these rates have increased over the last 10 to 5 to 10 years it's almost like a slap in the face to say we don't know why yeah yeah i, th- I think that's definitely um you know an issue in and of itself um you know looking at this and and seeing all these things like it's you know, we can pick to pick out and see like where, you know, these, these challenges are. And I think part of the problem being very blunt is the field itself. Like everybody who, if you know me, we thought, you know, we met on Twitter, you know, I will come, I come for the suicide prevention field all the time because yeah. the, the field in and of itself doesn't operate enough I feel like with his eye on public health, right? Like where, you know, a lot of what we do, a lot of our interventions and things are are very, you know, clinic, you know, clinician focused, which I don't think is an issue, but they use that to like decide who they're going to focus on. So like, it's like, you know, well, we, you know, we're seeing these crude numbers, like the crude numbers are, you know, middle-aged white men. So that's what we got to focus on. That's all well and good, but public health tells you to look at the trends. Yeah, we're not. There's never going. We don't have the numbers that they do. We know right. that anybody right. who's ever touched data knows that you have to take that into account when you're looking at crude numbers, which is why we have rates like that's how this works. Right. So, but why is it that when we look at rates for for other populations, we can lock into that, but when it came down to our kids, they were black experts like colleagues of my researchers who were screaming this when we were you know like in the trenches wasn't whether popular and nobody was paying them any attention and all of a sudden like you said here comes the article and it's like oh my gosh would you look at this and i know just like you there were other people in the field that were just like <laughs> what are you talking about <laughs> so like that's half the battle is just that the field for so long didn't have its eyes and ears open to it. And I feel like right now there's increased eyes and ears open to it because it's popular. And I and, and that bothers me, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the cool thing to be equitable right now. It's the cool thing to, you know, let's disaggregate some data over here and like let's do some community work over here. But you know, we're we're at the point where it has to be beyond the service, lip service. It has to be, you know in our policies also, it needs to be in our plans, it needs to be in our strategies. Um, and we need to be listening to community because community does have some solutions. They just don't have the the resources to get it to be an evidence-based practice. Yeah. All right, Brandon, we about to dive deep. Let's, let's go ahead and dive deep in this thing now. Um, so my man's Jabri, Jabri Harris was on the first a couple of the uh, Mortimer uh, credential series. He was talking about mm-hmm. the community you know what I'm saying? That when we talk about legislators, they should be directly listening to their community, what they're saying, and, and the community should have say in what is needed and where it should go, right? And I was yeah. thinking of that when you just said that statement about how we should be listening to the community and making those things. But here's my thing about this this, this suicide prevention piece and mental health, the field of mental health mm-hmm. in general. We know the field need to overhaul. It's, it's, yeah. it's 
knife is, is bending over. <laughs> yes. So yes. I can speak to that side of the field, yep. right? So, but my thing is, and this is how I've always defined mental health, is that it is the how we deal with day-to-day life stressors. That's mm-hmm. how I define mental health. I've always defined it like that and will continue to. Mm-hmm. How can we not understand the environmental factors that plague us doesn't play a role in mental health or suicide prevention. You feel what I'm saying? Oh, okay. I had a conversation with one of our legislators one time before. Uh-huh. And he was like, hey, we got the substance abuse thing down, which they don't. Right. <laughs> right. They only got the piece of it down of treatment. Yes. Because we always go into treatment. We just can't get this mental health thing down. Mm-hmm. And I said, that makes total sense because y'all don't look at the environmental stresses. Y'all don't look at the totality of the person and what they come in contact with every single day. So what does that look like? Does that look like lack of access to financial uh, financial security, Mm -hmm. income gaps, career goals and achievements, education level, uh, cost of living in reference to groceries, finance, taxes, things like these. These things, these People just ain't get stressed out for no reason. It's because of what the economy is doing. So mm-hmm. when you start looking at the economy, then you start looking at why mental health levels are up the way it is. Now, looking at African-American folks in the last 10 years, we've been freaking oppressed, been already oppressed, but it has increased being hunted in the last 10 years. Yeah. Police brutality killings. Why do you not think that it's not a direct correlation to mental health stress? suicide prevention in these spaces yeah and 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 that's that's the piece that i don't i don't get either because like we're all human we all understand these experiences like we all you know exist in this place and you know people choose not to to focus on those things every time i do a presentation on suicide prevention at some point i put up the social ecological model Mm -hmm. and i literally have highlighted every time community society every single time because we've we focus so much on the, the individual and, and what they you know encounter how they you know their coping skills for dealing with you know dealing with things but we don't talk about why you need the coping skills like why do you need to be resilient that's the that's the part that i feel like doesn't make any sense like we want to make you sure you're resilient resilient to what against what you know coping skills for what like those coping skills only come when I mess up, when I do something that I, it's not coming from something larger around me. There are so, so many things outside of our controls that controls us. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a weird dynamic that we don't, but we don't want to focus on, on, on those one, because we know that there are vast inequities. It will require like what you talked about, some systems needing, needing to be reformed in order to be able to move this forward. Like this is this is the, the the crux of the issue. Like if you have a quality of life that's that's poor for someone and you you know it is, and you know it's been set up to be that way, first of all, to change it, you have to acknowledge that piece. Yeah. A lot of people don't want to acknowledge that piece. And so and in seeing that, like, how do we make these changes? It has to start at that level. Like we have to look at people's quality of life, these inequities and you know, like racism, discrimination, and bias. Like I, I always talk about, like bleeding into 
these systems. The systems are already broken. And then you pour that into it on top of it where, you know, your school doesn't get the funding that the school down the street gets. You all don't have the new textbooks and things. And then you got to go in there and deal with adultification bias. You have to deal with the bias of you're more likely to be, even at starting at age five, more likely to be suspended and expelled from your school than your white counterpart. So like we're we're talking about these these layers and that goes into that community piece. We talk about these layers, you know, as if, as if they're separate from from us as individuals and if we don't start a, addressing that, we're going to we're going to continue to see these trends going that going that way. Like it's it has to be something that we pay attention to. It's it's an almost inevitable in that sense because we've been in a mental health crisis for the past 10 years, past 10 15 years. Right. And, and and you brought up the point about the quality of life piece, right? There's this notion, I believe, that the quality of life with American dream has to be blanket across the board. Mm-hmm. And because you're American, this is what it's supposed to be like. You're supposed to pull yourself by your bootstraps. Everybody did that. Everybody, this is what it is. And you just get through it. But there's no distinction between the quality of life and treating everybody's situation different. And that is one of the issues that I have sometimes when we make blanket statements on about mental health or whatever on on Twitter, social media. Mm-hmm. It could be blanket statements about one's experience. That's your experience. Right. Right. You feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's your experience. It doesn't mean it's the other person's experience. You feel Absolutely. what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't mean that you might be able to deal with anxiety or constructive criticism. Well, I mm-hmm. might not. Absolutely. That affects my mental differently right. than what it affects you. And so I think I don't understand how we can have all these groundbreaking evidence-based practices and, and all these healthcare systems that are so amazing and do ground level work, <laughs> but we don't have a basic understanding of everybody's situation is different. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's I think like I said, I think that also goes with the ability for us to dehumanize people. Yes. Yes. We don't see people as 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 full human beings and, you know, people like, you know, go back. I'm not talking specifically, you know, it's a good example of, you know, the three fifths of a person, you know, for for us. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. we can take that out all we want to. But what's happening here when we see people that look, you know, different from us struggling, like even like I bring up um, the the COVID-19 situation when we first it was like the cold was coming, you know, like this thing was happening. And then everybody was like, you know, do their parts, public health, like people like masks and stuff like that. When did we see the shift in people like, I don't want to mask up. I'm not social distancing. Screw all this. Is when that report came out initially that said that people of color were being disproportionately impacted. Once that happened, people was like, oh, yes, <laughs> I, I don't need this anymore. Yeah. Like yeah. those are the type of things like when we, it's, it's ingrained into a lot of what we do, you know, particularly in this country, for sure, um, that has impact that we don't necessarily even notice. Yeah, it's, I like to call it those micro microaggressions, too. Like, yeah. it's a microaggression, but it's micro micro yeah. for us, because we can see it's, un, it's unspoken. Like, oh, you know what? That is something. Absolutely. It is so underlined, but we can pick up on it. You know, yeah. um, and, I, and then we're going to move forward, because I I talk about this all day because I'm very good. Because after that article came out, I wrote a blog post, like a long blog post going off on it, bro. Like, because it was just, it just pissed me off so much. Yeah. 
So I was applying for some positions before I got went into private practice and looking into some positions at the state level and mm-hmm. did an interview or whatever. I'm not going to go deep into who it was if it's standing third, but apparently what Virginia is trying to do is they're trying to revamp their whole crisis model that they've been doing, which affects my old team in emergency services and stuff like that. And it came out of the Marcus David Peters Act. Are you familiar with that that situation with the, the black kid that got killed? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, that whole legislation came out around that, which um, makes, we already had, we were trying to implement the 988 number, yeah. which is coming, that's implementing. But with that act, it, it, it revamps the crisis model. And, you know, when that alert goes off, it tells officers about, you know, you know, if it's a substance abuse crisis, mental health crisis, things that nature gives them an alert, even though that goes over top of the CIT program, crisis intervention training, things that emergency services were doing with officers in this area. So they revamp it, they're trying to revamp that model and implement a new crisis now model from the uh, West side, I believe okay. that yeah. does the 988 and then gets them to a crisis call center Mm-hmm. alerts the uh, mental health professional and an officer to go out and then also have this crisis stabilization units that help. Yep. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it. My question to them was that, do you really think this is a good model to do given the state of the position of law enforcement and black people right. during this time period especially when they're in a mental health crisis absolutely come off the heels of that situation with marcus david peters yes secondly who is going to how are you going to pay equitably <clears throat> i mean well on a good level for crisis professionals to be out here and do this work and who was going to pay for the crisis stabilization stays? Because right. in my experience, when we did crisis, when I was doing crisis work, right? Cree Deed's uh, situation with his son changed legislation around our time frames on our um, assessments. So we went from, a, if you have under emergency custody order, uh, you had at one point you had four hours to find bed placement. But mm-hmm. then when Creedee's son came out, it put it up to eight hours, right? So it put up to eight hours, and then it also put up to the point where it says, if you could not find a bed within eight hours, they automatically go to a state hospital within the state. But the mm-hmm. problem was, the state hospital got full. Mm-hmm. So we were sending people to the state hospital. If we couldn't find a bed across the, across the, across the state to sit them in the hallways. Man. So sometimes folks with serious mental illness will be there, but it could be somebody who may have been, you know, also just first time, first time break or really sure. wanted, yeah, had an attempt or wanted to attempt and, and they ended up not finding a bed. They probably should have been in the crisis stabilization unit or something or a little bit more low level, but they met the criteria for psych inpatient and then right. they go all the way to Western State or something like that to sit in the hallway. Y'all yeah. didn't create, y'all didn't do well on that. Great, great idea, good intentions, bad right. execution. <laughs> right, right. So y'all want me to believe that y'all gonna sit here and revamp this thing 
and don't know how y'all gonna staff it, fund it, or still not see that y'all are positioning social workers or therapists with law enforcement who already in turn have a bad rep with the population of black people who don't already trust them. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Absolutely. One one thing I want to say to that um, for, for sure is that there was a, a document or a resource that was created recently. I can't swear to when, um, but during this pandemic time that talked about um, how to do crisis with equity in mind. Like, how do we talk about, you know, the role of law enforcement and what that means for, you know, people of color and how to, you know, remove them out of the process and things like that. It was created by the Center for Law and Social Policy. So CLASP um, created it and it's such a good resource. So I would be like, if any of your, your listeners and viewers want to get info on how we need to do that better and change that, their resources really do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of class before that. Yeah, because it's, it's and I, I've heard of other models out there that implement like remove law enforcement and then do like maybe like the EMS and the therapist mm -hmm. out there or the social worker, mental health professional out there versus, you know, this, that, and the third. I just, oh, man, you know, it, it, it sucks because I tell people like, you know, in the, in the space of this, you know, I do, I've worked with law enforcement in these situations. I never felt great about yeah, doing yeah. it, especially for black folks when they first time they in handcuffs under emergency custody order and then i had to tell mom or parents hey your your son or daughter had a mental health crisis they met criteria for inpatient they don't want to go so we're going to put them under a temporary detention order oh and by the way law enforcement is going to put them in handcuffs put them in their police car yeah. and transport them to the that yeah <laughs> you know yeah. it does not feel good you know right, right. um so yeah i i just it's so many, it's so layered, man. It's so layered. Um, Absolutely. And so I guess with that in mind, is there like a, is there like an end goal that you like to see in reference to your work in suicide prevention um, personally uh, with Black Wellness Lounge and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, I, I think my personal and professional goals are similar, but different. I would say definitely for the, the work piece, I think that, you know, really just building out these these intervention and prevention strategies. Like we know what the prevention strategies should be. We know risk and protective factors. <clears throat> we know those things. How do we build those out into getting states to understand it and, and look at it and not be so reactive? I think that's another piece of me as well. Like the people in the states that I, I work with across the country, I just want them to be proactive. We don't have to wait till we see a trend like this to get engaged and, you know, state level, like, you know, people talk about that five to 12 thing and people hear five and it's like, oh, it's no way a five-year-old. I tell people if I hadn't had that position at the state, I wouldn't have known because I'm not a clinician. So like, you know, I wouldn't have known that piece, but as I'm working with community, I'm like, no, that's a real thing. And so I yeah. want people to be knowledgeable about that, but but just be equipped with with the knowledge to, to be able to make the changes and the difference. Uh, with that. And I think, you know, personally in this space, I really just want to get into having conversations with with us, like more conversations with, with what we need and, you know, how to empower community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, like your, you know, everyday places around a neighborhood. Like, how do we all 
you know, kind of get on the same page and understand that this is, you know, important for us to do, because I feel like the conversation is changing. Um, and the more we can push it, I think the the better. And so that's where I'm at with that. Absolutely. Do you feel like, what would, do you feel like that um, with this role and this work that you do, would you be doing anything else outside of this if it wasn't for this? <clears throat> I don't know. I think this is, you know, sometimes you're like, you're, you're put in positions for a reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my, my faith is a big part of me. And so like, I, I really do feel like I'm, I'm purpose, you know, to do this work. But I feel like if I wasn't doing this, I'd be doing something that's engaged with helping, like maybe a teacher, maybe, you know, uh, a mentor, like maybe, um, you know, something like that. I think I would be really, you know, engaged with with working with with us and our community, our community and, and the advancement of it in some way. So even if it didn't look like this, it would, you know, be, be given back or something like that in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and I, I ask that question all the time because some folks, you know, be like, you know, I will be doing something else. So I'll be, you know, I'll still be doing something in a different realm yeah. that, you know, helps people and stuff like that. Um, and so you bring about the faith piece of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and faith and mental health, faith and suicide prevention. Right. And I know that's like kind of one of those areas where it's it, it's tough for for faith communities to kind of to just attach it or understand it. And I'm not sure your um, your religious background. Um, yeah. but I know for me on my side as working in my church and, um, being a deacon and being a mental health professional, like you get those calls, you know, and my, luckily my pastor is super aware he's big on mental health. So, um, yeah. anytime that something pops up, he's like, yo, Hey, what, what we need to do, you know, but I, how, how can more faith communities engage around this conversation that also includes, I feel like their religion that can help support it as well. Yeah, um, I, I think the conversation is changing around that in faith communities in the, in the Black church. So I'm Baptist, Baptist boy. Okay. <laughs> so like, as as a part of that, I feel like the conversations are, are changing. And it sounds like you have a pastor that's really into it. So my pastor is as well. Our first lady is a licensed clinician. Okay. She opened up a Christian counseling center as a part of our church. Like, it's, nice. it's there, right? So like, I get it. And I know that like places like us, like, you know, in those churches, we're spoiled, right? Because yeah. not everybody's getting it. And yeah. so I, I think, you know, understanding, I tell people all the time, like, you can have faith in your mental health for so for so long. It's been like, you know, if, if, if you're having issues with like depression, you're not grateful. If you mm-hmm. have anxiety, you don't have faith. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's, it's been it's been those kind of conversations. Uh, you know, you don't need a therapist. You need Jesus. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's all in those 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 conversations. And so I think a lot of people know you can have both. And I tell people all the time, like. If if we can say and go to a doctor and say, like, I, I trust this doctor, you know, like I'm a you know, I'm a pray over my, my doctor before I get this procedure. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in doing that with our physical health. The same God who gifted them to do that, gifted therapists, gifted social workers, gifted, you know, public health professionals, like psychiatrists, psychologists, like that, it's, it's, it's all gifts and talents to, to help us. And I tell people, there's so many people in the Bible that dealt with mental health challenges. <laughs> Talk about it. Talk about it, bro. Like, yes. I hold it. Yes. Like, you know, and I tell people, I'm like, you know, Jesus struggled. He was frustrated. He was angry. He was, you know, 
uh, you know, nervous. Like when we talk about his, you know, his journey, there were times where he was like, listen, if this cup could go, if it could do, if somebody else could do it, I, you know, let them do it. But you know what? All right, I'm, I'm gonna do it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that's a, that's a thing that we experience. And so I let people know, like, you know, you can do both and, and uh, having faith and having being a part of a faith community is a protective factor. Like having, you know, a social support group kind of built in network, you know, getting, having that greater sense of purpose can help you, you know, with your mental health and, you know, prayer meditation are definitely good active coping skills to deal with things. And so, you know, it's all a part of a design if we choose to stop and think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just revamping your thought pattern. Uh, well, I, I, one quote, I like to, when I do my presentations around like mental health and in in like in the church, stuff like that, when I, I, I like to do a deep dive back into our historical piece, right? And the generational traumas that we may have passed yeah. down, whether that's, you know, behaviors, thoughts, beliefs, um, you know what I'm saying? Or like certain things that we, we keep inside the family because of X, Y, and Z, right? But I also, like you said, it's like looking at Jesus as a therapist mm-hmm. or looking at people in the Bible as like, individuals who have dealt with certain situations i always go to king david and all the yeah. stuff he went through and just absolutely you know just forgive me father for doing this that and the third or you know struggling with whatever he's dealing with of right. trying to hold this thing together and you know or job you know how much he absolutely he, he lost everything Every, he had yeah. to put his faith in the god you know what i'm saying right, right. um just this this thinking right there and just revamping that because if we're going to say, and I think one of my um, my pastors said the best on the, on this episode of more of my credentials, like you know Jesus was really a counselor yeah. because he he and he spoke because he spoke to the whole person, mm. and that's what Absolutely. we do in social work. Absolutely, right. As, as clinicians, we speak to the whole person and other mental professionals. But is it not the fact that we have so much faith in God, right? That he you don't think he can't deal with the mental health stuff as well? Absolutely. You know, that's our limitation, not his. (laughs) Yeah, it's our limitation. It's like, what? I, you know, yeah. So that's a whole. I'm glad you spoke that up, and you know, I'm saying that's a whole different other, other, another whole space that that definitely needs a lot of work. Um, but I see it's it's coming around. It's definitely coming around. For sure. um, With that. Um. So okay. Um. Let's transition. We've got all the. Serious stuff out the way. <laughs> All right. So you say you you love the NBA basketball and you have you love like your music and stuff like that. Somebody we need to know top five favorite NBA players of all time or right now. All time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, in terms of in terms of my my favorites, um, I, I got D Way. D Way is my favorite all time. Okay. The the way I, I was following DA and Marquette, like that was, that was my guy. Like that was, that was my guy. So, so D way first and foremost, definitely putting Allen Iverson up there. Yes, sir. Um, Definitely putting AI out there. I mean, just revolutionized like one-on-one ISO basketball of like, I'm going to get past you. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and Iverson wasn't, he came before like the jacking up threes and stuff like that. Iverson used to get, his throw his little body in, into a big dude and, mm-hmm. and 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 deal with that um <clears throat> as well um i i know this is a controversial pick but my <laughs> one of my people um was was uh steve nash 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 was my guy 
I, okay. I love that. I love okay. Nash. Nash was my was my guy. Um, I just think his basketball IQ and watching him um, go to town was 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 amazing. Um, I definitely. I I I have to put LeBron up there. Um, I'm a I'm a big LeBron fan. I catch a lot of heat about it, um, but in terms of like everything, like he knows like what to like. He has the a, a more complete skill set of anybody I've ever seen in in basketball, and obviously it's Jordan. We know. I'm not gonna get into that. And we then, know. Right. <laughs> Then there's Jordan. So that that's that's really and that's not like in terms of ability, but in terms of like favorites, like to watch, I would go in that direction. Yeah. Well, that's what we meet at. You got AI D Wade, Braun in there. Yeah. I, I, we we here. We here. <laughs> with it. With it. Yes, sir. All right. So let's go top five favorite rappers. All time. Mm. Oh, that's me too hard. See? See, yeah, because there is a difference between all time and your personal favorites. I'm gonna go with your personal favorites. Cause okay. all yeah. time people might get upset. <laughs> oh, per- <laughs> all time, all time is gonna get me in trouble. I'm gonna say Yeah, yeah. For personal favorites, hands down to me, the greatest rapper of all time. We'll say this and I say it confidently, is Jay-Z. There are I, I we do not have the time to spend for me to go into my <laughs> But he is, and I again, I argue anybody with that. I would say, um, Jay Z definitely Pac. He was well before his time and the ability of pulling everything in culture, personal experience, um, you know, consciousness. Like he was pulling in, he was pulling in all of that. So definitely that. Jada is my guy. So like I could, I Jada and Styles are my people. Like. Yeah. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Um, definitely my people. And then that that last one is I, I grew up on the locks and D block heavy. So I was like wow. D block mixtapes, dipset, all in like I was, you know, wow. I was a part of that era. And the the last one is tough. I definitely I would lean towards maybe Scarface. Okay. I had to sit with that one, but yeah. Those are easy. Like those top four are easy, and then past that, maybe Scarface for now. But I feel like I'm missing somebody glaring that I can't pull. Yeah, I, yeah see, I, that, five, that, that five to seven. I was like, me and my boys always do these top five things. It's a mess yeah. with each other. But that five to seven is like inter- interchangeable depending on the year, yeah. depending on the day. It's you know, tough. it's you it's know. tough. It gets into a number of people, and I, you know, I'm one of those people. Like I, you know, also like we grew up in I grew up in Baltimore. Baltimore is very weird in terms of like it's very eclectic in a just way that people don't think about. We engaged and we were on to a lot of the southern rappers up here before mm-hmm. a lot of like up north really kind of got into it. And you being in Virginia probably yeah. got the same thing, and yeah. so. For us, like we were on to some of them, like we knew and were on Gucci. I mean, on Gucci and Jeezy long before, like so icy can't like. Oh, we were we were there. So I always try to give credit for that too, because you know Jeezy is my guy. Jeezy got me through a lot of a lot of stuff. Just personally, like, Jeezy is my guy. So it's it's a lot. It gets real dicey at that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 it. I like I like it. I like it. That's the first time I heard Scarface in that list. Um, Scarface is so underrated. I tell people, 
face mob is underrated completely mm-hmm. like he's yeah he's he's definitely one of the greats and i think it doesn't quite catch. and then oh yeah Andre three thousand sheesh um that's all like it's too it's yeah it's too, it's too but you know i think we in an area area man with dmv um because i had a couple dmv folks on here man and it's just like you know we pull we have our own sound but we pull yeah. from different areas too a lot especially with us being more central but tapping into the south you know they make that run yeah. up this east coast that taps into our area absolutely you know? um and so it just it just really um it really it shapes our, our our music taste and what what we allow to come in it's like it's almost like we're southern yeah. but we're not southern but right right absolutely. you're like we're dmv but we're not georgia like you know what I'm saying? right like, you will get absolutely. humbled real quick if you go down to georgia because you right. <laughs> right like you're not what no, stop it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff, man. Well, listen, man, we um coming up on our time um for sure. And we had a great conversation, man. Um Absolutely. And so um let me ask you this. Uh what makes you more than your credentials in reference to you know the things that you have to do the work that you do? Yeah, I, I think what makes me more than that is just my passion. Um, you know, my passion and my purpose, if I didn't have, you know, any of this, those, whatever, like, you know, I think just, you know, having a heart for people. And I think that comes from, from growing up in Baltimore and, you know, seeing what you're seeing, experiencing what you experience. We, you know, we tell people Baltimore will, will, you know, it'll make you tough. It'll, it'll make you tough. It'll make you strong, um, going through those things. But, you know, when I got older, I got to realize I got to see past the toughness and, and see what are some of the things that we were really dealing with and things that we were carrying across generations. And, you know, for for me, it's just giving me a, a heart for people, a heart for situations and a heart for knowing like, you know, we we never we never know the full picture of anybody's puzzle. Right? We don't have all the pieces. And so, you know, for for me, it's just like, I just want people to have the best possible life that they can get out of the time that they're here because, you know, some people go into bad situations they're born into those. But for me, it's it's really just my passion of wanting to, you know, see people and particularly our people to get the best that they can get out of life and be happy and thrive in that, um, you know, whatever those things are and to, you know, to change systems, even without a credential to talk to people to do the groundwork, go into community and, and help improve lives. Like that's, that's central to me beyond any letter that's behind my name. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. That, that, that fits, that makes you make the credential, not the credential making you because of for your sure. path for that, you know, plenty of folks with your credentials and, or my credentials that, that has nowhere near inkling of the stuff that we have passion wise or drive. You know? so it, it definitely fits that. So, yeah, man, this is the part where I like to give people their flowers, man. And I wanted to let you know that I appreciate everything you do in this field of mental health, suicide prevention and working with African-American people and just, you know, being that voice and being that person that educates, provide awareness and just, you know, standing strong in that because it's not it's not sure not easy to to continue to do that work and see it and see the inadequacies and inconsistencies and then just still be a black man and understand how that affects you and your people but also your family as well, man. So I appreciate the work that you do. You're inspirational as in reference to that and um, motivational around continue to do that work at that high level. And, and appreciate that. hoping that I can help add to that 
um, and expand that with you um, whenever whenever you need me in, that, in those spaces. But I just wanted to let you know that that I appreciate your your work and your work ethic. I appreciate that, man. Likewise, likewise. I'm so glad that we connected. Like Twitter did what it was supposed to do, and and yeah. now it's like this this Twitter family and things. And so I'm you know definitely grateful for you and your work and this platform that you that you put together to, to have these conversations. So I, likewise, man. Appreciate it, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So, yeah, this is the part where you can do all your prom promo, um, let people know where you can find you at. They want to book you. If they want to talk with you, they want to, you know, chop it up with you. Black Mental Wellness Lounge, this is your time. Go ahead. Absolutely. If you want to connect with me on, on Twitter, I'm at brand, B-R-A-N-J Johnson 1. Um, on Instagram as uh, Black Mental Wellness Lounge on Facebook as The Black Mental Wellness Lounge. And <clears throat> most importantly, you get connected to the videos and the YouTube page. Just go to um, YouTube um, and just type in The Black Mental Wellness Lounge. Our page will come up um, and just subscribe. We, we finally passed 500 subscribers. I meant to put a post about that. I did not because I forgot, but <laughs> we passed that. And so, you know, looking to add more, we just, you know, my, my goal is just to get the information out. So, so thank you all. But that's, that's where to get connected with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brandon, me and appreciate you coming on. Everybody likes more than my credential series, man. If you're listening and I just want to know more, you know, I hope this episode was helpful around just breaking down the barriers around, you know, suicide prevention, black mental health, what it looks like for us. Um, you got questions, please hit up Brandon. Brandon is the expert in this space. Um, and he's doing amazing work with Black Mental Wellness Lounge. Y'all make sure y'all go check it out. Um, other than that, we appreciate you being here. Until the next episode, we'll see y'all soon.